You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash twofertea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is um, Christoph, and um, he's anonymous on social media, and I'm going to just only give you his first name, uh, though I'm hoping that I will actually meet him in person soon. And I have seen a photograph, so I can confirm that it's not, I, he's not chat GPT or some kind of AI, but a real person, as far as I can tell. Of course, the photograph could be computer generated too. We are going to talk um, this morning about Twitter. Christoph, uh, whose account is at Halalcoholism, is my favorite um, person on Twitter, my favorite tweeter by far. And he seems to have the best grasp of both the kind of culture of Twitter, the sort of crazy opinions that flourish there, and also the most sensible and the funniest um, approach to the medium. And I think that uh, I will allow other people to introduce him. I'm just going to read you a few things that people have said about him. He is the Dalai Lama of shitty leftist cold takes, a herbivore gay Muslim centrist, one of the worst irony weirdos, and he has brain damage. Welcome, Christoph. Uh, yeah, that sounds like me. Um, you, you've, you've built me up, uh, so hopefully I'll be able to gently disappoint your, uh, your audience today. So um, how, did you, how did you actually, when did you first start using Twitter and how did you discover this sort of uh, niche of finding the most absurd and hilarious, uh, not just takes, not just individual tweets, but I guess opinion trends on Twitter and highlighting those. How, how did you fall into this terrible quicksand? Uh, at some point, I, I used to do a blog and I, you know, that was going back in, you know, back in the days when blogs were a big thing. Um, I wouldn't say I was all that successful or whatever, but I, you know, I was putting my long form opinions out there and I kind of got sick of that and it was probably the, the person I was when I started was a bit different to who I was by the time I, I closed it. And then I needed some outlet for a while to put some opinions out there. And I started doing it on Facebook. And then I realized I was just really annoying the shit out of people who followed me, you know, because I met them at a party once or, you know, uh, someone I knew from university. And, and so I figured I probably need to do something different rather than just piss people off who might otherwise be my friends. So um, I I dipped my toe into to Twitter and uh, it was quiet for a couple of years and then I, I gradually built up a bit of steam and, and um, got a bit, bit of a followership. That was around, I don't know, let's say 2015, 16, something like that. 
And um, yeah, been there ever since. And um, yeah, it's it's like I don't know. It's it's become too big a part of my life. I, I'd like to think I'm I'm able to not get too enveloped in in the online world while still being taking part in it a lot. You know, um, every so often my iPhone gives me an update of how many hours I've I've spent on screen time, and it, I'm, I'm glad my wife never sees it because she would tell me off. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I mean, I, I certainly feel that I don't know how many hours you are researching um, in order to find the tweets that you sort of curate, I guess, on your account. It's a kind of anti-museum, uh, your Twitter account. It's like a collection of the things that ought to be forgotten and die <laughs> and be erased from human memory. And uh, you are kind of... Um, displaying them to us before they hopefully fade away into insignificance. Well, Does that seem like a... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't spend that much time searching for this stuff. I, I guess part of the, the the trick is to know who to follow and, you know, mm. if you're, you're friends with, with pe- people who might expose you to these kind of things, if you follow certain accounts that will maybe bring some stuff to your attention. Mm-hmm then you you know you can come across stuff without having to actually go looking for it too hard and um obviously a lot of things eventually poke their heads up from the the morass because they you know more people start reacting to them and then you start to see them as well so um yeah that's how i mean you are actually there's there's a really sharp contrast between the kinds of things that you are highlighting and your own persona on Twitter. I mean, you are the most reasonable person I've come across on the site, bar none. Um, that's, that's a low bar, though, let's be honest. It, it is, yes, it is a pretty low bar. <laughs> um, but it, you're kind of every man guiding us through the, the swamp, you know? Um, <laughs> and I, I feel, I mean, I really find your, uh, your account actually... Um, makes me feel less sort of despairing at the ridiculousness um, of people's views and more, um, it's it's really like being in a very fun human safari park, mm. um, encountering your account. So I'm going to just, uh, just looking at what you're talking about most recently, um, you have um, a collection of tweets from people who think that Andrew Tate's supporters are more attractive and in better shape than his haters. And uh, men who have posted photos of themselves to demonstrate how much this is the case. Oh, to, to be clear, um, I posted the photos of them. So the, the photos are from the um, from their profile pictures. I just ah, thought, okay. Uh, I, I just put those together because I, I just thought it's interesting to contrast what they're saying about themselves as Andrew Tate supporters and what conclusions you might draw from the the profile pictures of, of them. Yes. And then you've got, um, uh, uh, then you're looking at a, a, a um, someone who is um, claiming that all of the oldest civilizations um, began with a, began with a Tamil people. 
So you've, you're, you've got that crazy person and her followers, the people who connect all three oldest civilizations of Egypt, Mesopotamia, and India Valley, um, sick, are the Tamils. Um, and you commenting, MIA bringing you the latest news and info from the Tamil anti WhatsApp chat. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you know who MIA is? No, I don't. So, is that a rapper? Yeah. Um, I mean, she, she hasn't, hasn't been big for a while but she was it was pretty cool you know going back into the noughties perhaps um so yeah she's Sri Lankan Tamil origin I think in who moved to Britain and and she was um kind of you know radical politics rapper um you know uh she had like maybe one or two big hits um but yeah it's just I, I guess it was interesting that she's now posting stuff which is exactly the same stuff that my Tamil mother-in-law tells me about Tamil civilization, which is clearly <laughs> derived from something she's heard on, on the, the WhatsApp chat that all South, you know, all South Asian aunties oh, yeah. have a, a WhatsApp oh, yeah. chat. I wouldn't when be surprised I, if MI is, is in the same WhatsApp chat as my mother-in-law. Um, yeah. I, I, I had to exit from about 20 chats that I was added to when I was living in India. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so you um you're you're basically a uh an exposer of really um absurd and sometimes surprisingly popular bad opinions. Um do you um uh, what are some of the things that you find most crazy but that have got more traction than you would expect? Um yeah, well, just jumping back to something you you said earlier describing me as an everyman or something, which, which is funny, but I, I guess that's, that's a nice way to see, see myself. But I, I, I in many ways, I, I feel like I'm just a, a normie um, and exposed to the, the craziness of, of what people say on, on Twitter. Um, and I guess I have that perspective of, of like, what would just a regular person think if you showed them this, this tweet? And, um, and obviously, whatever sphere of, of Twitter you go to, you'll find some weird and insane stuff. Um, and, and, you know, if, if it's in the, the kind of identity politics, left liberal sphere, you know, you've got takes on, you know, race and that sort of stuff, which would befuddle the average person um, and only make sense if you've kind of immersed yourself and, and bought into a whole range of ideas already. Um, that are exist in that sphere, and, and likewise, you could go to sort of trad conservative Twitter and and find some stuff that, likewise, is is just very strange to the average person, but will make sense to you if you have gradually bought into all this stuff. I mean, just just using the you know referring to people as soy, for example, or cucks. Um, this is the kind of stuff that you have to explain to someone who's not terminally online um yeah i mean how much do you think that the uh trends on twitter are influencing people's real life politics because even people who are not on twitter um i'm i mean no i'm noticing increasingly that outlets are citing tweets as evidence of things you know people criticized jk rowling's new book and then they're citing sort of three tweets um or Actually, Rowling does have a lot of detractors. Uh, something more like, um, 
when Star Trek Discovery came out, mm. there were a lot of arguments about, there were a lot of articles about a supposedly racist reaction to the casting of Star Trek Discovery. And um, that this must explain why fans didn't like Discovery. Nothing to do with it being an absolutely crap um, series, but a really poorly written series. But mm. um, the evidence they were citing would be in one one Guardian article, they cited three tweets, um, which had between them, the tweeters had 21 followers. And this was just placed there as evidence. So surely even, you know, larger Twitter trends can be, they can influence people's real life thinking because they can both normalize certain opinions and also cause this kind of paranoia uh, because of a belief that more extreme opinions are very, very, must be very common. Yeah, absolutely. On Twitter. Yeah, and in many ways there are narratives in, in search of justifications, you know what I mean? So um, in in the era that we're in, you know, we would like to push a narrative that there's, you know, this this uh, mass of, of, of racism out there, which, you know, I'm not, not trying to say that there's not a lot of racist people out there, but in addition to that, there's the kind of narrative that uh, people like to, to believe in, which um, I guess overemphasizes the the degree that racism is everywhere and influencing everything. And then so when you're trying to um, push something that, that feeds that narrative, you, you're going looking for tweets that, um, you know, you, you can put in a, a few uh, keywords into your search and then come out with, oh, look at all these people who are saying this. And sometimes it is representative of something, but sometimes it's it's maybe not. Um, mm. And and in, in a way, you know, they say you know humans are pattern seeking machines, right? We're we're looking for you know seeing all all these isolated data points and and trying to connect them to make a theme. And I, I guess some of the the disagreements we people have about you know how bad is this phenomenon where, you know, how, how bad is, is the extent of white supremacy or how bad is, is wokeness or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And people who um, want to see this thing as being a real problem, they have no problem connecting various uh, isolated tweets and, and seeing a pattern um, mm, or even, yes. you know, and connecting those to real life phenomena they experience. Um, whereas if you're invested in not seeing it, and, and viewing is not really a problem, you might just say, look, but th those are just, you know, random people, you know, a few people putting their dumb opinions out there on Twitter does not make a, a, a trend. Mm. And, and so, yeah, yeah it, 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 whether we, we want to see that as a problem kind of depends on, on how much we want to see a pattern or not. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly noticed that a, a phenomenon on Twitter, um, uh, which is that, in many people I follow, and I've, I think I used to do this quite a lot myself as well, and I've tried to stop doing it. Now that I've noticed how annoying it is when I see other people do it, um, how much it kind of pisses me off, and that's people uh, quote tweeting or screenshotting uh, a single really rude, abusive, or nasty tweet aimed at them. And then kind of telling their followers, look at the kind of stuff I have to put up with. Mm. And getting, of course, tons of 
tons and tons of validation and sympathy. Um, you know, for example, I, I will see women um, who've po- posted a photo of themselves, let's say, and the entire 99% of the responses to the photo are, you look wonderful, you look great, you go girl, kind of flame emojis for hotness and things like that. And then there will be one person who says, oh, you're fat and disgusting, you know, your cellulite makes your thighs look like cream cheese. And they will quote tweet or or screenshot that particular tweet and then say, is this really true? Do my thighs really look like uh, cottage cheese? In order to receive then another sort of barrage of praise from and support from their admirers and anger at this this person's rudeness towards them. <laughs> yeah, you know, some, some of the people I follow, 90% of their account is this kind of meta-complaining um, about the victimhood that they're sort of receiving on Twitter from these kinds of comments. Yeah, I don't know if there's something wrong with um, highlighting the, those kind of attacking comments. I, I guess it, it's what are you using it for and, and what conclusions and patterns are you, you trying to, to draw, you know what I mean? Because I, I think, like, um, you know, you, 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 might make a, you might want to make a really good point about just the toxicity of, of Twitter that, you know, you can post an innocuous opinion or a picture and, and someone will come come along and, and call you a, a whore or you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's it, that's not a bad thing to highlight, just to say, like, you know, <laughs> what kind of world is it that this is how people interact? Um, yes. But there is also the kind of, you know, seeking affirmation stuff going on that, that you've highlighted. Another thing that happens is that, you know, those kind of hostile reactions and comments are used to, portray a certain narrative of, of how the world is. So, for example, um, if if someone, you know, let's say a, you know, black person, brown person, whatever, you know, posts a, you know, what might be considered an anti-racist tweet, but it's actually quite racist. So some something about, you know, or, you know, all white people believe this, you know, and, and um, you know, white people smell or <laughs> or white people have no culture or, or, or whatever. And uh, they, they get pushback because it's a stupid tweet and it's clearly going to offend people. And then mm-hmm. the, the the pushbacks to the stupidity are then pointed out, oh, look, all the, these white people coming to attack me, I guess, you know, a hit dog will holler, you know. Um, this kind of proves my point. You know, if you say, oh, all white people are all really sensitive because they can't deal with, the, the racism that they're they're part of, and then people push back, and then say, "Oh, you see, white people are, are so sensitive." Uh, yes, so, yeah, it's a yes. reinforcing narrative kind of thing. Um, that's a very common pattern on Twitter, isn't it? To, <laughs> just people write the kind of t- uh, sort of provocatively terrible tweets. Hmm. Um, I think in some cases they must know that it's going to receive a bad reaction. And then the bad reaction itself is proof that they must be right because they're getting attacked so much. Um, so they must be, they must be the victim in that situation because mm. people are responding so hostilely to their, to their tweet, to their original tweet. Um, but the original tweet was kind of designed to elicit that response very often. Yeah. There's a sort of, it, it's like um, 
you know, deliberately poking an ant's nest, uh, ant's nest and, and then complaining, oh, all these ants attacking me. Um, you know, and, and it's not to say that people who get piled on, on Twitter deserve it, you know, um, but there is a, a certain behaviour that seems to, you know, put, put out an extremely incendiary take that is obviously going to get a reaction from people and then reacting to that as, as if you've been victimised or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's also um, returning, to, returning to the kind of phenomenon of highlighting the one of very few hostile responses within a, a long series, a long thread of kind of positive feedback. I think that that's, that's clearly a very um, human response and it's got clear evolutionary benefits. You know, we're, we're both descended from people who, when, who said, however beautiful a day it is and however pretty all these flowers are, I see a tiger over there. Let's get out of here. Hmm. The people who are like, let's not focus on the negative. There are so many beautiful trees, flowers, and fruits around, you know, <laughs> surrounding us. Let's eat this lovely, juicy melon or whatever. Yeah. Those people were lunch. So it's, uh, it's natural to focus in on the negative because that's something that we potentially need to respond to and or do something about. Whereas we don't need to do anything about people who are supportive or praising us or being complimentary or being nice. Um, we need to do some, potentially do something about the people who are rude, antisocial, etc. Um, but nevertheless, you have to see it in perspective because, because Twitter is open to absolutely everybody, you're bound to find that kind of response. And also, um, People who are a little bit crazy are just more motivated to tweet, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, as speaking for myself, at least. It's like, uh, you know, when they used to have those old radio um, call-in shows? Mm. It was all, the people who called in to talk radio always had the most bizarre opinions. It was always people who, were, who believed in um, Nazi UFOs or... Um, who were, or who believed in kind of special vibrations, or yeah. who thought Stalin had been misrepresented, or whatever. It was always people with the most extreme opinions, because they were the ones who were waiting on the phone lines, wanting to call in. And that gave you a very skewed view of what listeners were generally thinking. Yeah, I, I saw someone, um, maybe it was on, in a reply to one of your tweets, just yesterday uh, i can't remember who it is you know to give them credit but they sort of said that um twitter is kind of biased towards people who don't have better shit to do yes, um yes and it's it's really true so you know the the average adult you know is pretty occupied with work and maybe family stuff and they don't have have time to kind of doom scroll all day and and get outraged at things and and get into arguments with people over you know, pol political issues, or uh, you know, uh, about which uh, which female singer they they think is better out of you know Beyonce and whoever else, um, or which uh, K-pop band is the best. You know, these are the things that you know it selects for people who have more time on their hands, and also people who um, have carved out a, a a chunk of their life online, and so they interact mm -hmm. with more people. Who have the who have similar niche opinions, 
and um, who have the time and, and uh, obsession uh, to to focus on that stuff. So you're not going to get the average person to, to give their opinion on, on, on Twitter most of the time because they're not on Twitter. You know, Twitter is, even mm. though it's mm. very influential in our discourse, it's still a minority of people who uh, are using it regularly. You know, because even if we think about the number of people who have a Twitter account, it's, you know, only a minority of those people are actually constantly using it, like in the way that you and I unfortunately are. <laughs> so, um, because, you know, whatever issue you, 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 you see being discussed on Twitter, if you ask that of the average person who you encounter in your day-to-day life, most of the time they're like, oh, I, I, I don't know, I've never heard of that. Oh, yeah, it's okay, I guess. And that's, that is maybe the level of analysis that comes from the average person just because they're, they're thinking about their own life and not in, in the minutiae of all the, the myriad issues that don't necessarily directly affect them. Whereas, you know, someone who's looking at this stuff all day, um, maybe they've also got a, a range of other opinions that are bit, had, have been carved out by this existence online where, um, you know, you're getting fed all kinds of niche stuff all the time. Yeah. I mean, I, um, as you know, I think I had a, um, I, I went through a period in which I was just constantly fighting with people on Twitter, mm. um, and even picking fights with people, which on Twitter you can do very easily by just, uh, quote tweeting them in yeah. a hostile manner, you know, displaying their tweet to your followers and saying, um, it's a very tribalistic impulse. You're displaying a tweet you disagree with to your followers um, and saying to them, hey, look how, how how silly this opinion is. Don't you all agree with me about this? Mm. Um, it's like bitching about somebody behind their back with the difference that you're pointing this out to the person themselves. Like here we are all over here talking about saying bad things about you and that's liable to infuriate the person. So I got into constant fights and I even, um, as I, I, I've written about this on my self stack actually, but, um, so it's not a complete secret to everyone, but the psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, former guest of this podcast and, um, quite an eminent person um, actually sent me an email <laughs> and he said, I really like your work with Ario, but you need to turn over a new leaf. Your Twitter behavior is giving you a bad name. You need to stop having so many fights on Twitter and doing so much shit posting." Would you say he was right? Yes. Abs- oh, oh, he was absolutely right. Oh, yeah. and, I, I agree. <laughs> um, I was, I was quite moved actually. And I did say this to him at the time. I was quite moved by that. I thought it was a very uh, loving thing to do, you know, um, to have taken the trouble to write to me. Um, so I, I took it as a, uh, a very kind intervention, but it's, and it did give me pause, but it still took me another at least a year and a half before I really kicked the habit. And now I, I'm rare, I'm rarely doing that. Um, but, um, and, and so for me, then now the more positive aspects of Twitter have, are just, uh, at the forefront. And the main negative aspect is you have to be careful not to just get sucked in and be reading and responding to things all day. So the times, the, um, addictive nature, the kind of amount of time you can, 
end up spending. That's the main thing that I am concerned about. But I no longer really get into fights. And on the contrary, I just um, make mostly make friends. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I'm here in Oz for in Australia for three months. Um, I'm recording this from Sydney, and I would not be in Australia at all if I hadn't made friends with people on Twitter who invited me to stay with them and um, made this whole trip possible. And uh, basically everybody I know in Australia and everyone I've now met in real life, um, gone out on hikes with, um, had dinner with, um, I'm staying with, they're all people I interacted with on Twitter Mm. and whom I'd never set eyes on in real life or mostly even in some cases never even seen their real face or (laughs) known their actual real name until I arrived here on this continent. Um, It'd be weird if you um, hung out with them and still hadn't seen their real face. Like, you know, they're they're forever anonymous. They just have a mask on or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Um, and you don't even know their real name it's just like you have to refer to them as uh john three four six nine you know Um, but yeah like with what um jonathan hyde said like i i believe i've said similar things to you in the past um yes you have yes we also had this conversation i remember it was to to my credit it was about six or seven years ago now it was a good while ago (laughs) you've grown up since then (laughs) yeah yeah partly thanks to you (laughs) and you know from from all our and it's actually like we've we've not had heaps of of conversations you and i like we interacted a bit but it's not like we've you know, had heaps and heaps of DMs, but you know, from what I, I know of, of, of you from, you know, all my observations of you and listening to your podcast from time to time, I'm like, you know, I, I, you seem like you're a, you're a nice, generous person and not a, uh, innately combative person, uh, even though you're Scottish. Um, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, it, it did seem to be at odds with, what I, I saw of you when I, I saw you just constantly getting into fights with people. Um, mm. And I mean, I, I, I've, that's happened to me a bit um, in the past and, and probably a lot less now. And it, it, it's very easy to do because, you know, you could just be doing anything in your day and suddenly you get a notification and, and someone is calling you, you know, a piece of shit or, um, you know, oh, you know, you're a homophobe, or you know, whatever, or, or you're gay, or you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> and suddenly you're, you're sucked in. You know, um, yes. I had a tweet. I, I can't remember the wording, but basically, it's unlike most forums of debate because someone could be like demanding, you know, what's your evidence of this while you're you're taking a shit. You know, like you're you're trying to squeeze out a poo, and someone's saying, oh, well. <laughs> You do care to back up your assertions, sir. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it's very, very um, – I mean, I there's two things I think. There's a kind of uh, online rage, um, which I feel that just as some very mild-mannered people um, turn into – turn from Hyde into um, – from Jekyll into Hyde when they get into their cars. Yeah. Um, it's the same kind of feeling that – it's often the people who are most mild-mannered in real life and who are, I mean, in in real life, I'm an absolute conflict avoider. And in fact, if I, if there's any sort of 
even hinted an argument with a real life friend, then I, I immediately, I feel physically sick at the thought of arguing. You know, mm. I'm not an, I'm not an arguer. And, uh, but online somehow that kind of, I think the fear of conflict is gone. And then what's left is just an instinct to fight your corner. And a really, you know, there is a really strong instinct, isn't there, to defend yourself if your reputation is attacked. You know, we're social apes. Our reputation is, our reputations are important. And there's also a kind of, um, there's a strong impulse to respond to people's questions and people's demands for clarification. Mm. There's a strong impulse to say, even though you know in one sense, it's a waste of time. But when somebody says, well, what's your evidence for that? There's a really strong impulse to just get sucked into, whether friendly or not, just writing tweet after tweet, kind of trying to justify yourself. Yeah, and, and you'll often spend lots of time trying to justify yourself to a person who really doesn't, ultimately doesn't care. They, they don't want to see the, the, the good side of you. They just want to find any angle they can to make you be wrong or to make you look mm. foolish. And also, mm. you know, when we're talking about disagreements that we have in, in real life, it's, it's normally just, you know, yourself and the person you're disagreeing with. And maybe you can hash it out or maybe you just you go away and, and calm down and then you, you go back to having a friendship or whatever it is. But in, um, on, on social media, it's, you're being insulted in front of the world. It, it feels like, um, yes. e even if hardly anyone sees it, even if it's just the the person who's insulting you, it's, it's their friends that that see it. And they all like the, the tweet that called you a fascist or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> yeah. You feel like you know, I, my honor is being besmirched. It's like someone slapped yeah. me with a glove in in the old uh, dueling days, and I I, I yes. cannot let this stand. Yeah, I really feel that Twitter is a kind of resurrection of honor culture in many ways. Mm. Um, how has, so you talked about, apart from um, hiding your screen time stats from your wife, um, <laughs> how do you feel that your Twitter use affects your real life? Um, uh, and does it ever, does what you see on Twitter ever kind of inform, does it inform your real life thinking? Um, and is it is it merely entertainment or do you feel, I mean, I feel personally that you are doing a kind of service. And um, if there was a subscription fee, if you had to subscribe, you had to pay like $5 a month to view your tweets, you, Christoph, your tweets, <laughs> um, I would I would pay that. You know, I feel that you are, um, uh, what you're doing is actually verging on a, a work of art. In your Twitter account, and that's a very unusual thing to say about someone's Twitter account. Um, so I'm I'm not suggesting that you need to justify uh, to us why you're doing this. You bring great joy to many people, um, but uh, with your your specific Twitter use, um, I'll I'll be glad to um, uh, videotape what you just said and and make, uh, record <laughs> it and maybe put it in, in, into writing and and just. Uh, use that to justify what I'm doing. Like, you know, when I'm putting together some ridiculous tweet, uh, you know, during my working hours or when I should be uh, 
caring for my child and and uh, when I'm confronted I said look excuse me I'm I'm doing a community service here <laughs> um well you are I mean it's uh your I try to avoid doom scrolling by mostly just transmitting mostly just tweeting and responding to my own followers um but there are a few accounts that I always go and read and yours is the number one account that I always read and I even read your replies to tweets mm. um and you <laughs> in classic Christoph manner when I said this on Twitter you immediately um snap back that's stalking and that's a blockable offense <laughs> I don't remember that <laughs> okay um, but yeah in, in regards to how it affects my real life views uh it's it's tricky because I I, I think Twitter can give you a a peek into broader trends and um, things that are going on in the world outside your your own existence because obviously we're we're not necessarily plugged into what's happening at universities unless you're at one you know or or at um, in the media unless you work in the media and, and, and so on so there's all these different spheres of, of um, thought that you can you can access. Um, that's beyond, you know, like if you work at the post office, you know, you're just going <laughs> to hear about what happens at the post office and the opinions of those you come in, into contact with. So being able to view various trends and, and, and narratives and ideas out in the real world is, is quite valuable. But, how you know, how, uh, how representative those things are is open to interpretation. And I think for a lot of people, they... Um, hook into certain ideas which are quite fringe and then perceive them as well that that's that's how all these people think so there's an idea of um you know you you can take like the the stupidest idea that you've ever heard that's been uttered by a, a progressive person and then you can view that and say i oh, say this is what the left is this is what left-wing left-wing people think they they believe that um if you post a, a gif of a black person laughing that's racism you know mm. like uh, what's that called again uh, digital black uh, digital black yeah. yes yeah which is <laughs> you know uh, if, if you actually mention that phenomenon most even you know really online black people have probably never heard of that and, and won't believe that's an issue at all but um you know if if you're so inclined to to bl- believe a certain kind of perspective on the world, you can see takes like that, which is a real minority view that, you know, maybe there was one article written about it once and, and maybe a couple of people did threads on it that might have got a few hundred or a few thousand likes. And then that becomes, that is what the woke left want us to believe now, you know? Um, so if you're, if you're so inclined in that way of thinking, you can take these fringe ideas and make that, a basis for how you see the world uh, of the the forces are laid against you and the things that you believe. Um, you know, like the, I mean, as you're aware, I'm quite critical of what I see as, you know, let's call it wokeness, but there's a lot of takes uh, on wokeness, which are really just um, seeing the, the craziest uh, woke takes and thinking that's what all liberals or whatever think. I think a, uh, I guess what one reason I I do like to look at that stuff is because it, even if it's a really crazy take, it it might still be representative of a 
a sphere of thought in a way. Like there's certain um, uh, certain kinds of crazy ideas that you only get there if you have bought into the ideas that lead up to it, if that makes sense. So if you kind of get into the slightly weird and stupid work stuff, then that's the first step for you to start to believe the even crazier work stuff, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I'm, um, I hate to ask you this annoying question, but uh, recently I st- I'm still using the word woke. It's only got four characters, mm. which is helpful for Twitter. It's nice and concise. Yeah. And I do think that a lot of people are now saying they've no idea what the me- word means. Um, and I think in many cases that's disingenuous. It's just trying to trap you in definition so that you never get onto the actual issue that you object to. Um, mm. And I think Freddie De, Bo- De Boer wrote a, who is hopefully going to, uh, has agreed to come on this podcast, so hopefully will be a future guest great. soon. Freddie's great. Um, he said that uh, um, uh, something like, just tell me what word is the acceptable word to use when I'm critiquing this ideology that I disagree with, you know. Mm. Um, uh, but I, um, um, so just, just uh, as a kind of template, how, how do you define it? What do you see as, what, what for you is characteristically woke? Yeah, I, I guess for me, and it's coming from a perspective as someone who is generally, you know, left of centre and, and liberal in my inclinations, I guess I see it as a very identity politics heavy version of, of a progressive worldview uh, and one which is constantly looking to uh, attack dissenters um, and, and constantly looking to brand people who disagree with it as, as being some kind of bigot. Um, mm. And, yeah, I, I think the... Yeah, the identity politics angle is is pretty important, and and you know you, you can kind of be. There's always been identity politics in in, in various forms, but I think there's a a more recent incarnation of it, which kind of forms what we kind of know as, as being wokeness. But then, obviously, once you take that definition, which is the correct one that I have just given you, and yes. then get um, right wingers to talk about what what wokeness is. Some of them will just say that any <laughs> anything that is inclusive of diversity is woke. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know, you might have seen this thing on my timeline in the last day or so of someone who's complaining about um, Band-Aids with a variety of skin colours and, oh, like woke, yes. woke Band-Aids, <laughs> you know? Um, I had someone saying that the, the fact that I really like the movie Moonlight um, Oh, that's woke because it's a movie about a black person who's gay, and so it's got those two identity character uh, categories of blackness and gayness, which are not mainstream or, or you know not the the majority. Therefore, it's woke. Um, whereas, you know, I, I imagine there's lots of movies that you might consider woke, but just you know being about a, a black gay person doesn't make it woke. No, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I I agree. I think I guess I'd add that um, part of the uh, the notion of equity is uh, very important in the kind of work woke worldview, which is that uh, any um, discrepancy in statistical outcomes between groups 
um, is evidence of um, discrimination. So if you have more men playing chess than women, that must be evidence of sexism in chess. Um, if you have fewer black people, I don't know, going hiking than white people, that's evidence that there is uh some form of discrimination against black people going hiking. I'm using a more ridiculous example mm. because it's hard to imagine how in the middle of the countryside hiking on your own, societal discrimination could somehow be impacting upon you. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that that's one of the crucial things. Also, the kind of belief that you are, your identity qualifies you to speak about certain things. Yeah. Um, rather than your experiences, I mean, your specific experiences could, could qualify you to talk about, um, to give a more personal view of how specific policies might, might impact someone or something like that. But it doesn't, um, because you're a woman, that doesn't make you an expert on, uh, more of an expert on giving birth than a gynecologist, for example. Mm. You might be an expert on your own experience of it, but that that kind of standpoint epistemology that your identity gives you insights automatically automatic insights and greater insights the more oppressed you are i guess um greater insights into society that yeah. i would say and and if if we take it from the perspective of the the original meaning of the term work you know so as a black american slang term kind of meaning that you you see the system for what it is, you know? So I guess in that traditional meaning, it's like there is a sort of system of, of, of white supremacy that, you know, works to keep black people down. And if you're woke, you kind of see it for what it is. I guess that's mm. one, one way you could, you could put that. And so if we extrapolate from that, it's kind of like viewing um, uh, this, the system as, as not being merely white supremacist, but, but also oppressive towards to, to, to women, to gay people, to trans people, to, to Muslims, to, you know, um, every, every, every minority group in a, in a way, or, or even to, you know, maybe to fat people or to, um, to poor people as well. So therefore everything kind of gets viewed in that lens of, um, yeah, the, the, it, it's the, the, the woke people or the, the good people versus the system. And so I was, I was listening to, um, a podcast the other day. Uh, and do you know who Michael Hobbs is? Oh, yes. He's yes. A kind of annoying Twitter person, but I, mm. I, I, it made me think like his perspective <laughs> is basically every, every progressive or woke position is the correct one. So he's always finding reasons to demolish certain arguments and, and basically everything that he, like his ultimate point of view is that all the, what you would consider progressive talking points are correct and everything that doesn't fit in with that is wrong somehow. And when I think about what um, the, the sort of work perspective is, it, it's basically uh, if something makes um, a minority group members of a minority group feel bad it's it's probably a bad thing you know so mm -hmm. um if um people don't find fat people as attractive then that's a, a, an issue of um you know 
systemic discrimination which needs to be changed. You know, it's it's oppressive. Um, if um, uh, you know, if if people are are scared of um, Islamic extremism, you know, like it, uh, if if people say, oh, you know, the, I don't like the idea of the burqa, um, then under this sort of work perspective, that is a you know that that's kind of white supremacy working against the minority. Um, if if there's a um, someone has a, a disagreement with a, you know a, a black or brown person, then that, that can be viewed through the lens of well, that's because that's you know that's your white privilege talking, or yeah, oh what a surprise you disagree with the the black person, therefore you know there, there, there's a an angle in there that that shows that that's the system working against the minority. Yes. Yeah, there's a kind of paranoid form of wokeism, which you're often highlighting in your, uh, um, which you're often highlighting in your Twitter account, because of course you are choosing the more hilarious and ludicrous examples in which ab- absolutely everything is, um, is a manifestation of cis heteropatriarchal white supremacy. Yeah. Um, no matter what the phenomenon, it's always a manifestation of that in some way. And also anything that uh, people don't like, or even that you personally don't like, is causes harm. Yeah. So it's immediately not just, I disagree with this, but this actually causes people harm, um, this opinion or this view or this phenomenon. Um, everything is Everything is harmful. And the more kind of harmed you are, the sort of higher you are up the ethical totem pole. I mean, I still think that that um, the best book on this phenomenon is um, um, Manning and um, Campbell's book, The Rise of Victimhood Culture. Mm. You had them on your podcast, right? Yes, I yeah, did. I, a long I time, listening to that. Years yeah. ago. Yeah. That was very um, illuminating. Yeah, that was one of the first sort of books that was kind of about wokeness, I guess, about the woke phenomenon. And I think it's what distinguishes um, the woke view from earlier progressive views, like the kind of left-wing views that um, I held really strongly when I was an undergraduate. Now I'm more of a a little bit left of center, kind of new labor style um, leftist. But I was very, very much closer to a further... um, economically and socially quite far left views when I was younger. But even though um, I and my friends disagreed really strongly with certain views and were act- were way more um, radical about that than I would be nowadays, even though we really thought everyone who voted Tory was a fascist and things like that, the thing that was missing from that was a perception that being exposed to say, right-wing views would harm us or would harm vulnerable people in our community. Um, We thought that policies would harm people, but not just people holding opinions. So I think that's one. Yeah, and maybe it's uh, an extension of the idea that the personal is political. You know, like Mm. that idea of the personal being political is is not crazy. Like you can clearly see how it has real life manifestations. But I guess when we start to take that further and further, um, you know, just an opinion that someone holds and, and speaks into reality on, on Twitter or someone else, then you can say, well, 
that opinion by extension is doing violence to, you know, whoever it's upsetting. You know, if, if, if you say I, I'm not attracted to people who are overweight, um, that is doing harm to people who are overweight because someone might yeah. hear it and um, that might reinforce their prejudice against fat people or a fat person might hear it and then feel attacked and, and become depressed and, and, and so on. There's a perfect storm, isn't there, of, um, of the interaction between Twitter, this purely verbal medium, and a kind of, I don't want to pick on the left because uh, um, let me just stress that the writer, I think they're even crazier than nuts on the right. Um, and you also highlight them a lot, but, um, I find the left kind of more, more interesting, mm. um, in their craziness because the craziness seems more adjacent to something that I would agree with. Exactly. Whereas the right wing craziness is just like totally out there. Um, but there's this perfect storm of, of kind of complementarity between a woke worldview, which is, um, in the more extreme work, woke world, worldview is very obsessed with speech. Um, speech as a kind of, uh, way of causing harm and also as a way of kind of rectifying harms, as it were. I mean, I feel that I'm in Australia at the moment and I think the land acknowledgements, um, mm. I mean, I have nothing against them. I'm fine with it. I just think they do absolutely, it has, doesn't mean anything at all, does nothing at all whatsoever. I think land acknowledgements are a really good example of that kind of performative speech. And it's a kind of belief that if you just change the language, choose the right words, or force people to change their wording, that in itself will, will have a really strong impact on reality. And it's not that words have no impact, mm. but it's a, a, a very strong uh, over, overvaluing of the impact of word choices um, in both negative and positive senses, saying this word will cause harm. Yeah. If you use these words instead, it will be supportive of people and it will actually materially help them. Um, and that is just the perfect marriage for a, a completely verbal medium like Twitter. Mm. In some ways, I, I wonder if it's that, you know, if we compare today's world to, let's say, the 50s and think about all the social problems that existed in the 50s in terms of um, equality f between the sexes and, and races and, and uh, sexualities and, and, and so on. Um, we've done so much already to, to solve a lot of those. And it's not that they, they've completely gone away, but um, we, we've done a lot to, to make things a lot more equal. So, so much so that the, I guess the, the big problems have kind of mostly been solved and now we're, we're just working on, on the, the little vestiges that remain. Um, and then some of the other big problems that remain are ones that are quite hard to fix. So, you know, in terms, terms of yes. the economic, like, you know, poverty and homelessness and, and drug use and that sort of stuff, like there's no easy way just we, that we as individuals can fight those things. So I guess people who want to see themselves as, as making it uh, a change and making the world better, what is there that they can, they can do in their own, own lives? And, and one of those things is to uh, correct people's language and 
um, to argue about, you know, the nuances of particular ways that people talk, um, you know, by so if, if, if I can, can see myself as being a, a, a fighter for a good cause by telling you that uh, actually that particular word is, uh, is considered offensive, you should use this word instead, then, you know, that's me man, making a big difference in the world. Um, you know, I, what you said about land acknowledgements before, like I, I don't ha- have really strong opinions about it. Like I, I have to do them for work sometimes. Um, and that's okay. Um, but I, I, I can imagine a scenario where, um, you know, someone doing a land acknowledgement is, is then, uh, calling the police on a homeless indigenous man who's lurking around the, the property, uh, you know, like in, in front of your, your building, that kind of thing. Um, because, you know, when, when we say, you know, we pay respects to the, the traditional owners of the land they were on and, you know, that this is Aboriginal land or whatever it is. If 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 an indigenous person was to come along and say, oh, okay, so can I can I have this land? Then we would say, well, no, <laughs> you know, yeah. like because yeah. <laughs> what are we doing materially for them? It is, you know, I I, I do believe it has a you know a, a marginally positive effect in in I guess making people aware of of the circumstances that we live in and how they came to be, but you know. I guess the way to help an indigenous person is uh, primarily materially. You know, how do how do you create that distance, uh, sort of the, the difference in their their life, as opposed to something that you know you might see as purely uh, symbolic. Yeah, I mean, I also have a. I guess it. I mean, this is really nitpicky um, because um, I'm already noticing or hearing or listening to radio programs here in Australia, just how incredible, how uh, severe and uh, the problems are that are facing Indigenous people here um, and how complex. I don't want to start getting into that whole topic. Mm. So it feels very nitpicky to object um, to... uh, to have any objections to the land acknowledgements, which are just doing, doing really nothing at all, except maybe, maybe kind of trying to say something nice about indigenous people. Uh, that's how I sort of see it. But I, the kind of logical part of my brain is always slight, slightly irked by the idea that any particular, um, tract of land belongs to a particular people. Mm. Um, because that's the same. It's done with a completely different intention and effect. Well, actually, I think zero effect um, here in Australia, obviously. And but uh, that's the same language that the Hindu nationalists use, and it's the same language that white nationalists use in the UK. And I just uh, don't think it's accurate. Of course, that this is a very different thing from actually oppressing or genociding or all of the kind of ugly history that went mm. on. Um, but uh, humans are a migratory species. You know, I just don't b- think that any area of land belongs to any one group by virtue of ancestry or DNA or whatever. Um, so I, I always have a, there's a slightly kind of, um, a slight quibble in my mind when I hear it. Um, that makes me think, yeah, I, I understand why this is being said, but what's literally said, I, I probably don't agree with actually. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I feel, I'm sorry if I'm 
talking too much and no, derailing no, no. this convo, <laughs> but um, this has been, and this is not really relevant to Twitter, but it's been somewhat on my mind um, that I, I guess I, I, um, um, I, wa- I, I feel that some of the woke excesses, the identity politics stuff, I'm, I, I am seeing it being actually destructive um, in an Indian context. So in India, um, almost, every, almost everyone who is well-educated, articulate, successful, speaks fluent English, and therefore has wider reach, you know, both within India and worldwide, yeah. uh, uh, is um, high caste. And I would say almost everybody, I would go even further and say almost everyone is Brahmin. And um, uh, pretty much everyone who, every Hindu I met in India, so I also know a lot of Indian Parsis when I was living there, everyone who um, was dancing tango, who I became friends with, um, who I met through activities I was doing, um, almost all of them were from high caste. Um, mm. And mostly from Brahmin caste, and I can tell from their surnames. Um, and so that is undeniable. And casteism is one of the kind of greatest evils and the uh, longest standing forms of discrimination. Mm. Um, so it's, a, it's around two millennia old, and we know that from DNA testing. But at the same time, of course, uh, many, many, um, high caste liberals are very anti-Modi and are, um, they are, um, strongly against the Hindu nationalists. And I have been seeing a lot of demonization of people who are really on our side in this battle against the Hindu nationalists because they're, because they're from a high caste background. Hmm. And, Therefore, I'm, you know, I'm seeing a lot of those people being attacked and people calling for them to be silenced and stuff because it should be only Dalit voices speaking out or Bahujan, which is Dalit plus uh, Muslim, uh, Muslim and tribal. Um, and I find that extremely counterproductive. It's the left eating itself at the very moment when it's most crucial that we all band together. Now, first order of business is. Modi out of power, um, Yogi Adityanath and people like that out of power. And um, you know, our first order of business is countering Hindu nationalism, not trying to demonize people who are um, incredibly articulate spokespeople um, because they've come from a, um, a, a, a privileged caste background. Hmm. That's interesting. So, uh, sorry for that digression. No, I, I haven't... Uh really kept up with the nuances of, of uh, what's going on in the Indian cultural thing. I mean, I, my, my, my partner is Indian actually, but uh, she's a Malaysian Indian. So we're a bit removed from the, the dynamics of Modi's India. Mm. Um, in, in the Western context, I think the wokeness in a way, like if we think about, you know, in the way that people talk and knowing how to use all the, the right terminology and having the right ideas, it's kind of like a, a signifier of being in the right class in a way. So um, it shows that you know how to move in certain spheres, and it, it's a it's a way of saying yes, I'm I'm a one of the good people, um, 
and it ostracizes people who, um, you know, maybe come from a, a background where they didn't get, a, you know, the same kind of education. Uh, maybe people who come from backgrounds where they didn't um, grow up speaking English and, and therefore have not become as fluent with the, the way of, of speaking in, in these kind of circles. And that's kind of counter, counter to how, you know, ideally you would, you would think that a, a woke framework will work for the, the benefit of the, the people who are ostracized from polite society in, in terms of people who are working class and people who um, have come from, you know, refugee backgrounds and so on. And, and so even though it purports to speak for them, uh, you know, knowing exactly what words to use in, in a uh, situation to be properly inclusive is a privilege. You know, it's, I'm not saying that someone from a, a poorer working class background can't learn that way of doing things, but it's primarily people who have received a sort of education or have taken it upon themselves to um, immerse themselves in these kind of circles via the internet and so on, who yeah. can talk with this kind of fluency. I think it's also a very American centric. Um, yes. uh, e- so even people who are using the woke language in the UK are using it in an American way and it simply doesn't fit the context. So for mm. example, in the UK, white people as a group are overrepresented among the poorest people. And the areas that are the most economically deprived and have the highest crime are also majority white areas, like the Northeast and, I think this is still the case, the Northeast and the Industrial Belt in Scotland between Edinburgh and Glasgow. Both of those areas are whiter, quote unquote, than, than the rest of the country, in fact. That doesn't mean to say that I don't think there's any kind of uh, way in which white people are a victim group. But it just complicates the, the American story, which is all about um, poverty and uh, social imp- Im- impoverishment being closely linked with skin color. Um, and there's also, you know, the complicating factor that many minority groups are more con- socially conservative, um, more likely to be Christians or more likely to be conservative Muslims. Certainly in the UK, this is the case. I think much less in the States. So their, their model just doesn't, just doesn't map onto our, our model. Um, and, uh, yet that's, it's, it's so hegemonic, even among British people who are spouting that kind of rhetoric. They're spouting the US rhetoric. Sorry, go go ahead. Do you find, feel that in Australia too? What I so I'm about to say something which I have no proof for. It's just just a vibe that I get, right? And um, I never do that. I always have. <laughs> um, <Go on. laughs> so you, you know, people can tweet at me later when I'm taking a poo and say, uh, you know, where's your <laughs> evidence for this? I think um, the so if you think about how uh, left leaning parties in 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 the Anglosphere at least have kind of moved away from being a, a labor-centric movement and, and more representing the kind of educated uh, middle class in a way, and which also – so the educated um, class plus minorities, you know, so mm. um, sort of in- inclusive university-educated um, uh, classes is driving um, a lot of Western 
uh, left-leaning party. So you can see that in, in the, the Democrats in, in the US. You can see them in UK Labor, although, you know, UK Labor clearly has some um, strong working-class roots, but you can you can see at least a portion of that seems to be moving away from that. And, uh, you know, you think about, what's her name, uh, Ash Sarkar and, and her kind of peeps, that's a kind of the... Uh, hipster communist <laughs> kind of yes. uh, uh, grouping. But, Champagne socialists. Yeah, and, and so the one consequence of that is that there's a bit of distaste about the average working class white person. And I say white person because a working class person of colour, something about the the ethnicity and you know the diversity makes them appealing in a way that a, a working class white person isn't appealing. So if you think about a, a person, you know, one of the types of people that the, the labor movement traditionally represented it is the kind of, you know, the, the average guy who works as a, some kind of tradesman or works in a factory and, 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 you know, he's, he doesn't necessarily talk in a particularly politically correct way, a bit rough around the edges, um, might not be someone that, uh, that typically, uh, college or university educated middle class person would feel comfortable having a, a long conversation with. Um, so there's a bit of um, contempt, I think, in, in some left leaning circles towards that kind of person, which they don't really have towards um, a working class Muslim or a working class Afro Caribbean person just because they are they're able to glamorize. The person of color in a way that they don't glamorize the working class mm. white person, mm. and mm. so um, I'm starting to get off track here and forget, forget the various threads that I put out. But um, I guess the that means that you know there, there's not that much reflection about how um, political correctness, wokeness, whatever alienates a lot of um, poorer people uh, or less educated or, or more working class people because those people are, are kind of viewed a, a bit other anyway. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. I, I think the, the average, uh, let's call them a woke person is, is not as concerned with, um, whether a working class white person has, um, a, a, enough money to pay for their healthcare and their, you know, their bills and so on. Um, they're more concerned about, uh, you know, is, is uh, are, you know, are people talking in the right way about a minority group or that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, that's how you get people saying things like, you know, working class is a dog whistle for white people. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, and, and which, so- which doesn't make sense if, if their argument is that um, people of colour are more likely to be poor. It kind of doesn't make sense that working class is then a dog whistle for white people. That's that's really odd to me. Odd juxtaposition of views. Yeah, yeah. And clearly, um, the working class is, is full of, of people of colour as well. Um, but um, I guess people are when people talk about working class, um, it's often in whether they're highlighting the needs of working class people. It's often as a contrast between the kind of um, uh, demographic that people in the the progressive middle class see themselves as representing, you know, so the 
the educated, um, let's call them the professional managerial class, plus the the sexual and, and ethnic minorities that they like to champion. Mm, mm. Um, yeah. So I think that's a real kind of tension in um, in the left of centre in political groupings. I, I think it, it exists in Australia because. Um, I mean, look, I, I'm very much a <laughs> the typical uh, professional managerial educated class, you know, in, in terms of personally. But I, I just I don't think that the the desires and um, attitudes that um, define my 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 particular class should be the basis of a left movement, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, mm. Like, I, I want to make sure like it, it's it's one thing to have an in, in, inclusive and uh, pro diversity attitude but i actually want to be able to have you know your afghani refugee who works as a plumber i want him to be able to be included in in conversations and not excluded because people are using a bunch of technology um sorry terminology that um keeps him on the outer and, and the same is true for you know, if you think about a, a white Australian person who has not been to university and, and um, doesn't know how to talk in a very uh, you know, inclusive way. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's also that this is slightly going off tangent, um, but again, I'm kind of just dying to say this. Hmm. Um, it has been said before, um, most, I think, um, eloquently by Tomiwa Owolaji has a um, has a piece on this in Unheard. Um, but one of the problems also is that if you um, if you view the um, the average relative average success of certain groups as uh, the re- relative average um, underperformance of certain groups as the product of prejudice and discrimination if you say uh, for example um, Black people in the U.S. are poorer, and that's because of racism. Then you also uh, it's it's also logically the converse must also be true. So the success of certain groups must also be because of discrimination of some kind. Mm. Um, it must also be somehow unfair, and therefore you can get really easily into quite sinister racial resentments, and that. I think that's part of why, at least on the UK left, there's been a persistent problem of anti-Semitism. Mm. Um, you know, you you see certain groups who are ex- extremely successful, and then uh, what explains their success? Well, there must be something sinister afoot there. Yeah, um, that success must be undeserved, and it's got to be somehow counteracted. Mm. Um, and yeah. And you know, like, uh, <laughs> <Absolutely> dangerous. <laughs> yeah, and it, I, I think it, it's worth also pointing out. I mean, we, we we've talked a lot about, you know, in this whole conversation we've had about workness and whatever else we want to call it. Um, someone might listen to this and say, "Oh, you know, you guys are just echoing pro-establishment perspectives." You know, I think one aspect which a lot of people don't talk about enough is how. Um, this kind of excessive workness is a detriment to actually achieving progressive, you know, or left goals in a way. Like I, I kind of look at it as if you're trying to shift attitudes or you're, you're trying to push 
um, things through politics to, you know, get a social change, um, unless you're, you know, doing some kind of revolution, there's only so far that you can push people in a, in a given time, right? So if you're trying to, um, you know, get the better healthcare for people and you're trying to um, make certain changes which may, make something more inclusive for people who are not white, um, you know, you, you, you can push those things and shift the population's attitudes a bit or make, make a change in politics a bit. But the more you push, the more resistance you'll meet. That's just the natural way of thing. And I feel like a lot of the, the workman stuff is creating more fronts uh, of that the progressive movement is trying to fight, um, mm. which lead to more pushback. Um, but, it, you know, it, the, the more pushback that, we, that is created from all this kind of trivial bullshit, that's, um, that means that the, the important stuff that we're, we're hope, hopefully trying to, to push for is also going to be impacted. Does that make sense? So, like, yeah. if if um, if uh, conservatives uh, are under the, this idea that um, we're trying to make everyone transgender in schools or whatever it is, um, they're going to oppose, you know, ev- everything that left leaning parties uh, try to do because they're, um, uh, you know, they're they're focused on uh, these ex- things that they see as extreme. Um, because, you know, forcing people to use pronouns or whatever, whatever problem they, they see, um, the, the stuff that is, you know, what, what I would see is important, which is primarily, you know, material things, but, um, in terms of, um, social welfare and, um, healthcare and so on, uh, and, you know, f- fighting discrimination against where it's actually existing, um, the right-wing parties are uh, focused on so many culture war issues because they see the kind of extreme wokeness and they, they view that as the left. So left is, is trying to push all these, these crazy ideas, uh, e- even if some of those ideas are just being pushed by like a kind of small minority of people. It, it comes across as, as this kind of hegemonic idea uh, of the left kind of just wants to change everything. Um, and to the average person, um, even someone who's not like really tuned into right wing discourse or whatever, there is, you get a sense from a lot of people that, you know, people are just trying to, um, make us believe all this stuff, which is not true, trying to clamp down what we can say, clamp down what we can think. And I think, you know, if you're trying to, you know, push for important things, it's hard, it's harder when you, you've, you've got this perception that progressives are just trying to, um, enforce a whole bunch of stuff on people, which may, you know may not really be happening, or is is may, maybe not that important. I don't know if I've made sense there, but yeah, no, I think you've made perfect sense. I mean, I I absolutely see, for example, in the UK, the Tories are uh, the Tories. For example, this is a slightly outdated example, but focusing heavily on the fact that um, someone who um, I don't want to get into the whole trans issue in, at length here, but someone who is clearly a guy um, with a beard and muscles, dressed in a suit, looking totally like a man, um, 
won the kind of Woman of the Year Award and <laughs> won some Woman of the Year Award in Scotland um, because he identifies as non-binary and therefore could count as a woman in their categorization. Mm. Um, and that was like, I feel that that was like a kind of gift that we on the left gave to the Tories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it enabled them to run with that um, rather than um, what they're doing with the National Health Service, you know, or what's happening with train prices or how we're going to cope with the fact that um, with the energy crisis and with people's heating bills and, um, you know, that the important things are the material circumstances of people's lives. Um, and it's, uh, the woke stuff is just, um, the, the right just eats this stuff up because, um, whilst you're arguing about that and looking kind of ridiculous, um, then you're, then you're getting away from the economic issues on which we could probably make common ground, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's also this sense of among the left that you, if somebody bad agrees with you, then you must be wrong. Mm. You know, if the Tories also agree that this is ludicrous, then it must be something we must rush to defend. And that's just making your, uh, holding your own opinions hostage to the opinions of people you, you already say that you don't respect. What's the, how does that make sense? Exactly. And it's sort of, the underlying assumption of that kind of point of view is that, um, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a liberal, then all the, the standard liberal points of view that are allowed are the correct ones, you know? So the, the stuff like, you know, there's basically a, a list of positions that you are meant to hold or allowed to hold if you are a progressive, if you're a liberal. And, um, if, if you don't hold one of those, then there's, you know, that falls into the conservative camp or, or whatever. Mm. And so um, it doesn't allow for the fact that maybe, you know, you, you can be overall liberal in, in your perspective, but then think, well, actually on this particular issue, the liberals kind of got it wrong um, or there's, you know, there's, it's a bit more complicated than, than the standard liberal point of view. And therefore, um, yeah, it, it's the, the, the tribal thinking. And, and so if, if you have a, a disagreement about, you know, let's say how we talk about race and if, if you've got a if, – if we assume that there's a, a particular progressive liberal perspective which is a bit messed up about how we talk about race and you disagree with that, people say, well, you're being right-wing now. You know, you're mm -hmm. taking a right-wing perspective. <laughs> and I would – say that there's one of the problems with the current progressive ideology is that there, there's these areas where they're just a bit confused and therefore just giving, you know, free kicks and, and uh, open goals to right-wingers who can just point out obvious things that are wrong. You know what I mean? And, and so, yeah, yeah. Like as an example, you know, if, if we're, we would go back, you know, a few years when I guess one of the big things everyone was talking about was terrorism and, and Islamic extremism and, and that sort of stuff. I don't know this is areas that you and I have, have talked about in, in various capacities, but um, it's one it's one thing to uh, uphold the rights of Muslims to be treated with, you know, 
fairness and, and not to be discriminated against and, and not to be, uh, you know, put under constant surveillance, surveillance and blamed for things that they, they didn't do. When we start saying, well, actually, yeah, Islam is the most feminist religion or there's nothing wrong with a woman wearing a, a niqab, that's, that's just a woman's choice, that sort of stuff. To me, that stuff is is so obviously wrong, and and mm, mm. the average person will will spot the bullshit in that. Um, yeah. But if if no one on the progressive side is is allowed to find any fault with those ideas, then it's just giving a, a free kick, an open goal to the, the right wingers who point out, well, actually, a niqab is is kind of misogynist. Yeah, and it's absolutely kind of uh, requires. In a huge mental gymnastics, mm. you know, when you've got parents who are protesting outside the school because they don't want children to be taught that homosexuality is acceptable, um, it, it, it you can't. I mean, it gets more and more difficult to sustain the idea that um, Islam is a wonderfully progressive religion. Mm. You know, um, and and that kind of. To do that kind of professional mental gymnastics, you have to be an extremely online progress, uh, online ultra woke leftist type. It just won't fly with anybody else. Yeah. It's so obviously absurd. That's um, right. So I'm aware we've been going for a little while, but um, before we finish, I'd like to return to the topic of Twitter. Mm. And in particular, you know, I've come to feel very pretty positive about Twitter, um, about the fact that it exists and also about its role in the social media kind of ecosystem. Um, and so I do actually have quite a lot of positive things to say. And I was wondering whether you also feel that there are uh, major positive aspects to Twitter and if so, what you feel that they are. Well, it would, it would be silly of me to say that it's only a negative thing because, you know, there, there's people who spend you know, half the day on Twitter and then talk about, oh, it's a hell site, um, we're, you know, where we're all miserable here, uh-huh. you know, which is kind of true. But um, uh, the, f- the fact that anyone spends a significant amount of time on there, they, they must be able to see some positive things about it. Um, one, I guess, is that it allows, um, you know, you, you get to see ideas, you know, um, being expressed and being discussed in, in real time by all kinds of people. It's not just the high profile, you know, journalists and politicians and, and public intellectuals, but also, you know, quote unquote regular people, um, whether they're regular or, or just like highly, highly online, uh, people is, is, uh, debatable. But, um, I guess, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a, a, a nobody. I'm not, uh, in the, the pr- privileged class that, that gets to, uh, you know, do journalism or put my opinions out there. Yet, you know, I, I still get to interact with with people that do, and and sometimes those ideas will percolate to the surface because you got the, a retweet from someone famous, or um, someone will discuss an idea that you've expressed. Um, and you know, you you get to converse with people who, in other aspects of life, you you would never get to, like um, someone who's uh, really, you know, well-known uh, that you might admire if, if you're uh, smart enough or, or, or good at asking questions or good at answering, you know, you might get to have some meaningful engagement with um, someone who's famous or, you know, 
you might get abused by a famous person as well, but yeah, the other side of the same, <laughs> the other side of the coin. Um, but also, it also means you're not just subject to the opinions of, of the the information creating class. You know, the the politicians and journalists and, and so on. Like, um, there are lots of people who become kind of well known just from putting their opinions out on Twitter, and sometimes they go on to to form uh, Substacks and podcasts and that sort of stuff. But you know, not not always. They might just stay uh, on Twitter and you know, get a lot of engagement for their opinions. And sometimes those opinions are garbage. Um, there are some very obnoxious people with awful opinions that we probably both know who uh, have acquired huge followings on Twitter. But, you know, that's that's just the nature of it. So there's there's good ideas and bad ideas that get an, an airing. Um, because, yeah, we don't want to just be subject to what the journalists and media class uh, tell us. And I guess also, and this, this is a, both a negative and positive thing, but um, people who are famous and, and or privileged in, in their access to information and to disseminate information, putting their ideas out there, um, they can get pushed back by just average people. So um, someone who's trying to spin some bullshit on Twitter, they will get um, you know yelled at in the replies or they'll, they'll get made fun of. Um, for that bad thing that they're trying to put out there, whether it's actually bad or just some people think it's bad. Um, so, you know, in some ways there is a sort of speaking truth to power element to it. Um, of course, you know, what you define as speaking truth to power, it, it might just be someone with, um, who's put out a very sane opinion and uh, some other person is calling them a, a fucktard. And um, that, <laughs> that's the other side of it. Um, because I guess when, when, you know, the, uh, quote unquote infamous Harper's letter came out and people were talking about, you know, there's this kind of issue on, in, on the left in liberal spaces of of people being intolerant of, of dissenting opinions or, you know, people, uh, shouting down and using canceling tactics of, you know, people who are trying to express themselves with nuance. Some people viewed that as just, you know, here are some journalists and public intellectuals who can't handle it that people are calling bullshit or disagreeing with their opinions, uh, you know, which is, you know, maybe there's something to that. But there's also, uh, you know, just you can say something very reasonable and a bunch of people will call you names for it or label you as, as something pejorative. So that's the the two sides of that. Um so, you know, you, you, your results may vary. Um, so, yeah, in, in, in some ways it, it, it puts uh, the average person's voice out there, or I guess the average Twitter user's voice out there, I would say, and, and um, it, it does open up the, the field for a, a variety of different voices, uh, for better or for worse. Um, I, I think I'd say, oh, um, and there's also the, the culture of, of Twitter has created interesting ways that we relate to what people say and sort of you know, analyses of of phenomena in real life and, and online, which, you know, you, you don't find anywhere else. And I, I guess what I mean is I was thinking about there's certain iconic tweets which um, speak so much about, you know, whether it's the human condition or um, Twitter discourse, right, and 
they kind of become memes. And, and so I guess a, a few, I thought about this earlier, a few jumped out at me. So one is, um, it's a tweet by Mike Jin, I believe his name is. And I'll, I'll read it out. It's my not involved in human trafficking t-shirt has people asking a lot of questions already answered by my shirt. Um, you've probably seen that one before. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's probably an, an yes. iconic tweet, but it, it, it's something that kind of encapsulates that idea of um, someone protesting too much, you know, so someone who is uh, denying being involved with something that they're clearly probably, you know, involved in or it's kind of suspicious about. And that's, you know, you see that kind of thing um, all the time on Twitter. Another one is, um, is a treat, uh, tweet, I believe it's by Adrian Bott. I never thought leopards would eat my face, sobs a woman who voted for the leopards eating people's faces <laughs> party, you know. And again, that, that's that really iconic tweet because it, it captures so much about um, people advocating for a particular outcome, which is bad, and then being shocked when the bad outcome hits them. Um, another one is mm. by, you know, a real Twitter icon, uh, Drill. And this is the, you know, he's got heaps of these, but one of them is, uh, I'm not owned. I'm not owned. I can I continue to insist as I sh- slowly shrink and transform into a corn cob. Um, and yeah, that, that, you know, that phenomenon of someone, you know, just being demolished for saying something stupid, but, uh, going down in a, in a, in a blaze where they, they're still, uh, thinking they're right and, and, uh, acting as if they're actually winning this exchange when they're getting destroyed. Um, so yeah, there's a particular way of, of relating to, to tweets and phenomena, which exists through all these iconic memes and and tweets that everyone knows about, uh, which I, I find really funny. And it's hard to explain to people who are not, uh, heavily on Twitter. Thank you. Um, I I could go on talking for ages, um, but I ha- I realized that we've actually been talking longer than I thought, and I have to go. Um, it's been a huge pleasure talking to Christoph. Yeah, you too. Thank you for being um, the best the best person on the best tweeter on Twitter. Uh, that is, in my opinion. Well, uh... uh, the goat, as the tw- as the young young people say. <laughs> Uh, clearly, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure how many people will uh, share that opinion, but the the fact that there's one <laughs> person everyone. out there who, who sees me <laughs> as as the goat, um, that you know, maybe that's made it all worthwhile. Like most opinions on Twitter, it will not be universally shared. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much, and uh, have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O or patreon.com slash 2 for tea. Have a wonderful week.